This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, I'm John McElroy. Thanks for joining us today, where the topic's going to be all about autonomous vehicles, but especially the safety of those vehicles. And that's because my guest is Mark Rosekind. He has formerly been a board member for the National Traffic or National Transportation Safety Board, as well as the administrator for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration during the Obama administration. But now he is the chief safety innovation officer for a startup called Zoops that wants to provide robo-taxi services. We're going to learn all about it. But first, I got to say hello, Mark. It's great to have you here. Thanks, John. It's actually great to see you again. Yeah. So what I'd like to start this conversation off is asking you about autonomous technology in general. There was a lot of hype a few years ago. I've been a big proponent of it myself, but because it hasn't instantly materialized, now a lot of people are throwing in the towel and saying it's never going to happen. Way too complicated, way too costly. What do you say? Well, John, this is the perfect place to start. So good question, because... As you know, and you just said it, you know, NTSB board member, NITS administrator, I start with the numbers. You know, we're losing 100 lives every day on our roads. It should not cost your life to go to the store, to go to work, to go to school, to go see your doctor. It's just not acceptable. And what's interesting is we know uh, we can keep doing what works. We can apply more of a systems approach, right? The design of streets, et cetera. But the new tool we have is technology, right? So I love the Einstein quote, you know, if you keep doing the same thing, expect a different outcome, definition of insanity. So if we want road safety to improve, we got to do something different. And that's kind of your point, right? The big new tool is the technology. But also to your point, it's not like you flip a switch and tomorrow everything's on the road and we have like no safety problems anymore. Not at all. So yeah, you know, I think we are looking at transformative technology. And again, it's going to take time and resources for us to get there. And when you think about it, you know, if you take just one technology, 10 to 12 years for it to actually penetrate the entire fleet. Okay. Now we're talking about major change of all kinds. I mean, fully self-driverless cars. That's a 20 or 30 year objective, if you think about it. So, you know, is it coming? Yes. People should be patient, kind of get away from the hype part. That's not helpful. Um, but I think we are looking at transformative safety opportunity that could help us not just in safety, but actually mobility for people and sustainability. So I, I'm a huge supporter like you are. Um, and I think, as you've already said, patience is what's critical here because uh, this is our moonshot, you know, and you're not going to get it tomorrow, but it's absolutely worth our pursuit. So let's talk about Zooks a little bit. There's so many uh, AV, uh, autonomous vehicle startups out there. Some have, uh, you know, some companies have already given up on it. I mean, Uber sold off its uh, technology that it was working on. What sets Zooks apart from the others? So I'll just address that in two parts. First, the company. Um, from the very beginning, we've been somewhat unique because we're doing what's called the full stack. We're actually building a vehicle from the ground up, specifically purpose-built for autonomy. We're doing the AI, so all the software for et cetera, as well as operate the fleet. 
And that's because we think that integrated system, think iPhone, right? When you put an integrated system together, that's, and, and transportation is way more complicated than making a phone call. So we think you need that integrated system and it's given us a lot of opportunity. Um, and the other part I think what you're getting to is uh, about a year ago now, Zooks was acquired by Amazon. And it is to your point, uh, provided for us a great partner that gives us the time course, the resources, a lot of business expertise at scale for Zooks to take our model and really bring it to the world. And so again, Zooks, uh, it's pretty unique, especially the fact that uh, in December of 2020, we actually revealed our purpose-built vehicle from the ground up. So last week, we just issued our second safety report that talks about uh, multiple safety innovations that are actually built into our vehicle that aren't on the road in cars today. Well, let's start talking about that vehicle. Very interesting. There's not a front or a back to it. It can go either way. Uh, why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah, John, thanks for bringing that up because the vehicle's bi-directional. And I always tell people, get your head around that. <laughs> what you just said, right? There's no front or back. So when our vehicle pulls into a parking space, it drops you off. When it pulls out again, it's going forward. And so it's never going to have to make a U-turn, a three-point turn. So just think about what that means in a congested city. I mean, just a U-turn, right? Where you've got oncoming traffic, right? Coming right at you. And you're trying, in this case, it's like you pull in, when you pull out, you're going forward again. And so again, when you think about maneuverability within a city, what a unique capability. And, and there is no vehicle on the road that is bi-directional like that. But beyond the maneuverability part that's interesting, and we can talk more about this, is it basically means there is no front or back. And so one of the things in the safety report, we talk a lot about redundancy, but it means we have a lot of two of everything, right? Two powertrains, two batteries, et cetera. So beyond the maneuverability, it means that redundancy allows us to really go after a design objective no single point of failure in our safety system, in our safety critical systems. Yeah, I, so I want to get into, get into so, that just so the, the viewer really understands. Uh, you have steering and electric motor and battery for one side of the car and steering and battery and electric motor for the and brakes, of course. So that's getting to what you're talking about. Redundancy. Even if one side of the car completely conks out, the other side will still get the car going. Exactly. And, and that is aviation level kind of safety, right? I mean, no single point of failure for safety critical systems. That's aviation level. And, you know, it's very straightforward when you think about it. But if you're not designing the vehicle from the ground up to do this, it's kind of hard, right? So yeah, to your point, there are two powertrains. So, you know, the motor goes out in the back, the battery in the front. Well, there's still going to be that motor in the front and the battery in the back. It's going to function. And we've designed for fail operational. Right, which means that if there is a failure, it can literally finish taking you to your destination before it needs to come in to be addressed in some way. And so we have that um, in so many different systems. Uh, we've got that with the batteries, there's two batteries. Um, and besides the high voltage battery, there are also two 12 volt batteries that can handle steering and braking. And there's even an electronic parking brake, you know, so there's even sort of a third system behind that. So multiple redundancies. And again, the, the point is, most of that should be invisible to you, the rider. You know, it should just get me from A to B, it'll drop you off, and you wouldn't even know if there was some system challenged in any way because you get dropped off and then it goes to take care of itself back at maintenance. 
look, I love this, uh, this idea of redundancy and perfect for autonomous vehicles, but you've essentially just doubled the cost of the powertrain <laughs> and everything, haven't you? How do you justify doing that? Well, this is another really important point that you're bringing up, which is, um, as you said earlier, this is a robo-taxi. So this is, you can take a ride on your own, or you could share this, which is what we're encouraging, so ride sharing, but we're not selling this to you. We're selling you rides. So why that's important is there's no question that we're spending more money to build this vehicle um, with the redundancies, with all the safety innovations, but we can do that because we can basically spread the cost of that vehicle over all of those rides over many years. So, you know, the point that you're bringing up is if we were going to sell this to people, you'd be making decisions. Not too many sensors. Nope, too many batteries. Nope, too many. You know, people aren't going to pay that much for this kind of a vehicle. We don't make choices based on that because we're not selling it to you. And so instead, we can actually raise the safety, the comfort, um, you know, the all electric, et cetera. We can raise all of that because we are basically going to spread that cost over many rides. We're going to sell you the ride, not the vehicle. Mark, as you know, one of the appeals from uh, either a fleet trucking standpoint or robo-taxi is if you take the driver out of the equation, everybody realizes, oh, my gosh, you can drop the cost. But as uh, I'm sure you're very familiar, there was a paper that came out of uh, MIT in 2019 that said, whoa, 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 hold on here a minute. It's not cheaper. You know, you've got to have these vehicles cleaned. You've got to especially have the sensors perfectly clean. You've got to have a remote monitor watching the car so that if there's any problem, this person can take over, et cetera, et cetera. They ran all the numbers. They said it's no cheaper to do it compared to an Uber or even a regular taxi. How do you answer that? Well, I think the good part of that is the analysis, which is you're absolutely correct. Everyone says, oh, we'll get rid of the driver. Let's just, you know, we'll cross it off the list. You know, it's no longer on the P&L. It's not a profit loss issue. We're just getting rid. There are other costs associated, absolutely. But what's interesting is if you look at the numbers from current ride hailing and ride sharing, um, over 70, up 80% of the costs are related to the driver. Okay, so that's pretty significant. And as you know, the current models, um, they don't, you know, those companies don't own the vehicles. So again, to the point that you've got maintenance and other kind of insurance, et cetera stuff that gets handled by whoever's operating that fleet. And so, yes, um, the point is there are costs associated beyond just paying for the driver. But again, if you, you can actually raise the cost of the vehicle and some of the service that you provide, because over years, you get to spread out the cost by the service you provide, as opposed to, well, you know what, John, I'm going to sell you a car, it's going to be $350,000, right? $500,000. You know, it's like, no one's going to pay that. But if you were to take that or even less, you know, 100,000, right, and spread it over five, 10 years of practical use for every one of those rides, that makes it a good business case. So I, by saying that, you're suggesting that these vehicles that you're building will be maintained and repaired and even upgraded over years so that the, the sunk cost or most of it is going to be amortized over maybe over up to a decade. Yes, and that's what I said. It's a totally different business case than when you drive off the lot and, you know, depreciation cuts the what you just paid in half. Right. Um, totally different business model. And 
you know, if it's going to be a robo-taxi, then I imagine you're planning on launching in dense urban areas where people use a lot of taxis. So, yeah, just to be very specific, um, our vehicle is fully autonomous. It's all electric and it's built for riders. And we are focused to give riders in congested cities, you know, point A to point B, safer, cleaner, more enjoyable than what we've got now. But we're starting in those dense, congested areas because we think that's the place that you can really sort of break this model open. And as you know, that's not the only model, right? I mean, people are doing trucking and first and last mile and how do you complement public transit? This is just one we know there's a huge need for the safety, the mobility, and the sustainability opportunity. Will this be low speed only, say maximum 25 miles an hour, or what are you thinking? You know, what's interesting about that is our vehicles uh, have already been designed, tested, and running up to 75 miles per hour. So they're built for highways. They can go anywhere. But to your point, you know, it's going to start at low speed because we'll be in cities. And we're testing in San Francisco and Las Vegas. And, you know, in San Francisco, while the average speed limit might be 25, the average speed's about 12 and a half, right? <laughs> it's a congested city. I mean, it just, you know, moves slowly. Right. So looking at your vehicle, and I want to get into some of the safety aspects of it, but let's start out with side impact. I know you're going to talk about a lot of safety, but it doesn't seem to have the side protection that I would expect in a normal everyday kind of car. So we get that question a lot because it is a different design. And, and it's actually got two things. It's a different design. Plus, again, we don't have a steering wheel, brake pedals, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that's in the report is that, and again, as you know, current crash protection is mostly built around the driver in the front left seat, as well as the front passenger. So, uh, you know, you're in the business, you realize that the crash worthiness standards for the front seat are different than they are, actually higher than they are for the back seat. So our vehicle, since you've seen it, is carriage seating, right? And that means basically you could sit in any seat. It's just as likely to be sitting in one seat as any other. And so our goal has been basically to deliver five-star rating for every seat in that vehicle. And so, you know, to your point, it means that we do all the standard crash testing, and we're hoping to actually be able to deliver on five-star for every seat in the vehicle which again, you can only do that if you're building from the ground up to provide those protections. And uh, I think today we just dropped some uh, information and some videos about our testing. We start with LabBot, which is our laboratory stuff, but included in the series that will be coming out uh, will be some crash tests and it's, it's doing quite well. Yeah, look, I, I, the viewer should be aware that being able to have a side impact crash standards, five-star, for that kind of a vehicle, that's really impressive. I gotta believe one of the things that plays a role in this is all the different kinds of airbags that you've designed into it, including one, and this is a new one on me, called a horseshoe airbag. Tell us about that. So what you're referring to, and, and I'll just take one step back for a moment, is we have this philosophy, prevent and protect, because we think all the new tools you know, all this new technology allows us to prevent incidents from happening in the first place. I mean, that's the ultimate proactive safety. Don't let it happen. But let's be clear, stuff happens. And if it does, then we want to protect occupants as well as other road users, okay? So in the report, we talk a lot about the prevent innovations, but we also talk about rider protection. How do we take standard stuff, seat belts, airbags, right? 
crashworthiness standards and try and enhance those, set the bar for those. So what you're referring to is, well, we don't have a steering wheel or a dash. The classic places where you'd put an airbag. Now what? So we got to totally reimagine what that should look like. So you just mentioned it. The five that are portrayed in the report are very, it's just very cool. There's a curtain airbag, which is like a U-shape that is a reactive surface. So the other one, which is the um, frontal airbag, which actually appears in front of every, comes down from the ceiling, appears in front of every passenger that's actually in, right? It's actually indented. So there's a, a you know, the top half is specifically designed to protect head, chest, neck, you know, specifically for those issues. Um, and think about it, the curtain actually, not only is it the reactive surface for the frontal airbag, but it's also the one that prevents everything from flying around the cabin, right? I mean, again, I, you know, I'm a recovering NASA scientist. I've done a lot of stuff at NASA. You know, in, in just an altitude drop, the thing you worry about is just people flying all over as well as their laptops and all the other stuff, okay? So again, if something were to happen, this curtain protects everybody as well as gives a reactive surface for the airbags. And uh, there's five. <laughs> I mean, we just portray five in that report. The curtain, the frontal, the rear head, the side head, as well as the side seat, you know? But part of what's really cool, there's an airbag control unit, ACU, and it actually decides based on the velocity. Don't forget, there's sensors everywhere. So based on the direction, velocity of the collision or incident that's about to happen, it actually decides which airbags to deploy and in what order to give maximum protection to the people in the vehicle. So again, that's a totally new concept. Yeah, yeah, totally. I imagine you guys are writing some patents as you go along this way. Uh, there's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of innovation. It's it's really you know for someone like me that's a safety person, it's great to see us innovate. And, and let's be clear, and I, I just got to put this out here. I, I'm so honored to be the voice to talk about this. But let's be clear, we got brilliant designers, brilliant engineers that are coming up with this stuff. And for me, it's just so exciting having been around how hard road safety is to see this, you know, these brilliant designs come to life in a vehicle that's actually going to be on the road and able to, you know, save lives and prevent injuries. So you're, you're right. You're a safety guy. Let's talk uh, in the, the broader picture here for a moment. There really aren't any regulations per se when it comes to autonomous vehicles. Uh, that's been good and bad. It's been good in one sense in that the technology is racing so far ahead. I mean, going to take a while for the regulations to catch up. The downside being, of course, that some companies have cut corners in trying to do this stuff, and there's been accidents and fatalities as a result. You're a former NHTSA administrator. What do you think the government should be doing? Well, and, you know, we're just seeing that happen. I mean, there were not literally announcements made, you know, yesterday about some new things where they're going to collect certain crash data and stuff. So I think you've got exactly what the challenge is, right? The model that I've talked about is we need innovation. So uh, people, it makes them crazy when I say this, but we've never done this before. You know, again, this is our moonshot for our generation. And so it's not like someone says, take the book off the shelf, it'll tell you how to do this. We got to innovate, not just in safety, but all these areas to actually make this happen, okay, and get the full benefits. So I think we're in this period of innovation. What we need next will be data-driven best practices because that will become sort of the standards and they will lay the foundation for regulation. And most people, John, don't know this, but it usually takes about 10 or 15% of 
penetration of a fleet before you get enough cost-benefit data that you can actually create a regulation that you can go to OMB, Office of Management and Budget, because they look at every regulation. And if you can't show what the cost-benefit you know, analysis is, go home and do your, right, do your homework again, okay? So you, you know, that's why when people say, well, the regulation lags the technology, it's always gonna happen that way, right? Because the government doesn't invent the technology, industry does it, and then you need enough of it out there to help the government direct what's the right kind of regulation. So you hit exactly what the challenge is. We need the innovation, but you can't have the wild, wild west. You know, um, break things, a sort of classic Silicon Valley way, you can't do that in road safety because we're talking lives, not acceptable. And so again, I think you need this balance of how do you support innovation that make sure the guardrails and constraints are on there that this is done in a safe manner. Um, and what you're highlighting is there is absolutely a critical role, I'm biased, but there's absolutely a critical role for NHTSA and DOT to have in helping keep the road safer, even as we're innovating in these areas. You, you've been talking robo-taxis, that is, moving people around, uh, but Amazon bought the company. I got to believe they're looking beyond moving people and moving packages as well. So that was the number one question everybody asked for the last year. You know, How's that going? And by the way, when are you moving packages? So uh, the two things I've been telling everybody is we're independent. So you know, they're, they're our parent, um, and they've been great to work with but we're an independent company. And the second thing is I can tell you from the very top, we've been told stay on your mission of moving people in congested cities. And so we've stayed laser focused on that mission. It's hard enough, but think about it, John. Um, if we can do that dynamic complex thing in a city, then guess what? Moving packages, straightforward. Doing it in you know, the suburbs, way more straightforward than doing it in San Francisco, Las Vegas, et cetera. So think about it. We're building a platform, and that platform could move people. In the future, it could move packages. Um, and frankly, even before some of our conversations with Amazon, we had a prototype of something that could do that, you know, just because, again, we got really creative designers, and they're like, let's think about this. Let's think about that. So we've got, you know, designs for all these different things. But Amazon has been great about stay on mission, move people in congested cities. That's where this opportunity is so big. Okay, you're testing in a couple of cities now. When are you going to go public, so to speak? When are you going to actually launch this as a service? So uh, we're not really talking about that. And, and I just straight forward about it because, you know, there's been too much hype. <laughs> you know, we're going to have tens of thousands and this is like, and then guess what? It doesn't happen. So you know, we tell people when we're actually doing stuff as opposed to projecting things out. Um, and I'm saying that because I, I can't tell you our, our time course is, um, as you know, we do laboratory work, simulation work, test track work, private roads, and eventually public, and eventually public roads turn into public service. That's a long pathway. And so to your question, um, we're gonna be starting in the next year or so, uh, pilot demo, um, where we'll actually see that newly developed vehicle on private roads, you know, delivering people around to their destinations, et cetera. And then, you know, one or two plus years beyond that, we'll actually see public service uh, in a city. Uh, but I think, you know, to your point that's interesting, of course, is now with Amazon, you know, as parent for Zooks, um, where we in the past might have thought, you know, a few hundred vehicles in a city, 
Amazon thinks at a global scale, you know, so it's way bigger. Um, and, and that's kind of exciting, right? Because if you want to deliver safety, mobility, sustainability, you want to do it at a global level. And we're excited about that. We're getting down to the last couple of minutes here, but how profitable can this be? I mean, sure, you're going to charge for rides, but, you know, what everybody in the industry is talking about is monetizing the data that might be generated in those vehicles, even amongst the people in them. Is that part of the business plan? You know, depending on who you want to read, analysts put this industry at a potentially $10 trillion opportunity, right? And again, that's not just next year, but, you know, when you put all the pieces together, and so I, I think what's interesting is what you're highlighting, there's so many different angles on this that people haven't taken full advantage of. And if you let people have their time in a vehicle to do something besides drive, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to think about not just them reading and working on their tablets, but what are the other things that you could potentially monetize and get, you know, you know, there's a bunch of really smart people trying to figure that part out as well. That's right. So you think you'll be significantly cheaper than an Uber or a regular taxi and what you charge for a ride? I, my guess is that you'll see uh, these programs will start at about the level of what people are paying now, but for a little bit higher level service. Um, and then you will see what you're suggesting is over time, um, that could actually see the price start coming down. But that's, you know, to be determined. You've got some other competitors out there. Waymo and GM Cruise are right around the corner. There's got to be a first mover advantage in this business, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, I think, again, it's one of those things to balance, which is um, there are going to be a lot of winners. You know, the market is so large. Everyone says, you know, who's going to be the winner? And it's kind of like, eh, you know, Apple isn't always the first, <laughs> but they do pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I like to point out, you know, it's like there's not one car company. There's not one phone company. You know, this is what competition is all about. So uh, we think uh, Amazon Zoops is going to be one of those competitors right there at the top. Mark Rosekind, thanks so much for your time today. This is a fascinating part of the business. It's truly transformational. Transformational must be a lot of fun to be riding this. Well, I hope someday you're going to come soon and we'll give you a ride in the future. You're on. Thanks for that. Thank you. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.